0: Tonight we're moving into Isaiah chapter 50, and I think that's where we'll focus our attention tonight, just that one chapter of Isaiah chapter 50. There are 11 verses in chapter 50, and this is uh, could be called, one, one title of it could be called Israel's Sin and the Servant's Obedience. And really what we have in chapter 50 is a contrast. It's a contrast between... Israel, who is sometimes referred to as the servant of the Lord, but a flawed servant of the Lord, an unfaithful one. And then contrasted with an ideal servant of the Lord, who fulfills the Lord's will and listens to him with open ears and obeys his voice. Uh, We've seen this before in chapter 42, where we have this contrast between Israel as the servant, but then a a preeminent servant, an ideal servant who accomplishes the Lord's will. And so we'll see that again here in chapter 50. Uh, In the first few verses of chapter 50, verses 1 through 3, we see the focus on the Lord as Redeemer in relationship to a wayward people. So the redeeming Lord and his wayward people. So the Lord's going to present himself as their savior, as their redeemer. But in so doing, he is going to rebuke Israel for their hard heartedness, for their stubborn refusal to listen to the word of the Lord and be delivered by him. And so verse one, um, we see an unresponsive family, which is Israel, an unresponsive family. Verse 1, it says, this is what the Lord says. Where is your mother's certificate of divorce with which I sent her away? Or to which of my creditors did I sell you? Because of your sins, you were sold. Because of your transgressions, your mother was sent away. Obviously here, the Lord is through Isaiah, right? Isaiah is the Lord's mouthpiece. Isaiah is delivering the message of the Lord. And he's using uh, metaphorical language to describe the relationship that the Lord had with his people. And it seems, to, it seems that based on these rhetorical questions at the beginning of verse 1, that there was maybe a, a mindset or an attitude among the Israelite people that somehow it was God's fault that they ended up in exile. That there was some failure on the part of God, or uh, as implied by the question about the creditors, that somehow God was forced into this, that he was indebted to someone, and and so he sold them into slavery. And the point of both of these rhetorical questions is you can't produce a certificate of divorce. You can't produce a list of creditors uh, to which God owes anyone anything. And so the point is that that God was not forced, his hand was not forced into uh, making his children go into exile. Um, Rather, he puts the blame squarely on their shoulders where it belongs. So there's no problem with the Lord. There's no problem with his ability. There's no problem with his faithfulness. Uh, He is not under obligation to anyone or indebted to anyone there is one reason why the people of God are in exile, and it's because they've rebelled against God. And so that's where Isaiah puts the blame. Because of your sins, you were sold. You've been taken into slavery. Because of your transgressions, your mother was sent away. And probably the idea, the, the metaphor of mother is probably the idea of Jerusalem being seen as like the mother and all of the Israelites as like the children. But so the idea is when when Jerusalem fell and then all of her children, her and all of of her children went into exile, that's probably kind of the the image that is there. But God says it was because of your sin. That's why you've gone into exile. So the problem is not with the Lord. And then in verses 2 and 3, the Lord is describing how uh, he came to them. He gave his message to them. He came through his prophets, but they refused him. They rejected him. They disobeyed. They did not listen to the word of the prophets. So he says in verse two, when I came, why was there no one? When I called, why was there no one to answer? Was my arm too short to deliver you? Do I lack the strength to rescue you? Again, rhetorical questions. The obvious answer is no, right? Um, The Lord's, the Lord's arm is not too short that it can't save. And, and this is just an image that we find throughout the Bible talking about the arm of the Lord. The arm of the Lord is representative of his power, his strength, his ability. And there's no problem with the Lord's strength or ability. So he could have rescued them. He could have delivered them. The problem was that they, were, they had closed ears. They had hard hearts. And so when the Lord came calling... Through his prophets, they were, they were rebellious and they were hard-hearted and they did not listen. And so they went into exile. So they refused. So there was no one to hear. There was no one to listen to the word of the Lord. And then we see an emphasis on the Lord's power. He's, he then is portrayed as the competent Lord. The last part of verse 2 and then into verse 3. So we see an unresponsive family, the family of Israel, viewed through the lens of a family as God's spouse, and they were unresponsive. So they're, they're going into exile is clearly on their shoulders. The problem is not with the competence of the Lord. So at the end of verse 2, he says, By a mere rebuke, I dry up the sea. I turn rivers into a desert. Their fish rot for lack of water and die of thirst. A um, couple of things could be going on here. One This could be just a general statement of the Lord's power that that he has the ability to do whatever he wants to do with nature. And and that would fit very well. We know that God in his power is able to do that because he's the creator. But there may also be something a little bit more going on in those words. And many commentators see a link to the Exodus when he talks about drying up the sea. And so we've seen this before in Isaiah where he links their coming home from Babylon to their coming out of Egypt. And there's that link, almost like coming out of Babylon is like a second exile or a second exodus, I should say. And so some see that imagery here. But the point is, is that God has that power. If there is that link to the exodus, then that power has already been on display before in the past. And the people of Israel have seen that. God can wield that same power again for the sake of his people. He can dry up the rivers and the seas. In verse 3, I clothe the heavens with darkness and make sackcloth its covering. And the idea here is uh, darkness and sackcloth is probably the idea of mourning, of sorrow. And I think there's also significance in verse 2 referring to the seas and the rivers, and verse 3 referring to the heavens. And there's probably an intended uh, what's called an inclusio where you've got um, by by giving both bookends, you're also including everything in between. So it's the idea of the seas are considered the depths and then the heavens are the skies as far up as you can see. And so basically the full extremes of the created world, God has power over it. And, and he can do whatever he wants to do in his creation. So the problem is not with his ability or his competence. The problem is with their unfaithfulness and their stubbornness. But then we see a, the contrast then come in in the rest of the chapter. Verses 4 through 11, we see the sovereign Lord and the testimony of his servant. So there's a contrast. There's the unfaithful Israel, but there's a faithful servant the one who does what the Lord's will is. So we saw an unresponsive family back in verses 1 and 2. Now we see a responsive servant. So directly the opposite. Israel did not hear, did not listen. No one answered when God called through his prophets. But the servant is viewed as someone who is very open and responsive to the word of the Lord and obeys his voice. So verse four says, the sovereign Lord has given me a well-instructed tongue to know the word that sustains the weary. He wakens me morning by morning, wakens my ear to listen like one being instructed. Now, one of the things you'll notice if, as you read chapter 50 of Isaiah is that there is not a, a clear, explicit reference to the servant. So there's there's some interpretation that has to go on here in identifying who this person is that is speaking here in verses 4 through 11. Because whoever this person is that's speaking in verses 4 through 11, he's speaking as in the first person. So he's giving like a personal testimony. And he refers to the sovereign Lord. So... The I cannot be the Lord, which in verses 1 through 3, the person who is speaking was the Lord. So we see a shift in speakers from verse 3 to verse 4. Verses 1 through 3 was the Lord speaking through Isaiah the prophet, but now there's someone else speaking, a man, a servant of the Lord, speaking first person, I, and Commentators disagree a little bit. Some think that this is referring to Isaiah, the prophet, who's speaking as the first person here. But because of what is said, I think it is far more likely, and I agree with the majority of commentators, that see this as the servant. Even though the word servant is not clearly there, the the person of the servant is all around this whole context in Isaiah. In fact, in just a couple of chapters... At the end of Isaiah 52 into Isaiah 53, we see the suffering servant. And so we've seen the servant in chapter 49. So all around this context is this servant. And so many think, and I think they're right, that this person speaking is the servant of the Lord, which I believe is the Messiah ultimately uh, fulfilled by him. And so the sovereign Lord has given me a well instructed tongue. The idea there is, is one who is full of wisdom. Uh, and the, the image that comes to my mind is when Jesus was 12 years old, debating, asking questions, learning there with the, the teachers of the law in the uh, synagogue when he was 12 years old. Uh, we see Jesus later in his ministry teaching and people at, at wonder, saying, Here's a man who teaches with such authority. So here is the servant described as someone who is wise, someone who knows the word. um, And he is he is someone who ministers that word on behalf of the weary, which also fits with what we know of the servant in Isaiah, as well as the ministry of the Lord. Isaiah 61 says that the Lord has sent the servant to bind up the afflicted, to preach deliverance to the captives to um, to give uh, recovery of sight to the blind. So here he's described as someone who comes to minister to the weak and to the weary and has that word of compassion for them. He wakens me, that is the Lord wakens me morning by morning. He wakens my ear to listen like one being instructed. And clear contrast there between the closed-eared Israel who did not respond to the word of the Lord, but the servant, the righteous servant of the Lord, who is very open and receptive and obedient to the will of God. In verse 5, the sovereign Lord has opened my ears. I have not been rebellious. I have not turned away. So he's a righteous servant. He's, he's open, receptive, uh, submissive, obedient to the word of God. Jesus said in his ministry, I've not come to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. So Jesus was always perfectly in line, perfect in harmony with the will of the Father. Verse 6, I think we see some of the clearest evidence that this is talking about ultimately Jesus, the Messiah. Verse 6 says, I offered my back to those who beat me, my cheeks to those who pulled out my beard. I did not hide my face from mocking and spitting. Now, the New Testament doesn't directly quote. Isaiah 40, uh, 50 verse 6, but there are clearly strong allusions to it, aren't, aren't there? Uh, we see those patterns matching up in the Lord's crucifixion, don't we? When he was scourged and his back was beaten. When they ripped out his beard and they mocked him and they spat on him. So this is this is the servant of the Lord suffering as a righteous one. So he's not... And notice the contrast too, because... We're talking about a people of Israel who are in exile. They're in suffering and they're going through difficult times. But why are they in difficult times? They're going through hardship because of their own sin. But here, the righteous servant of God is described as someone who is enduring backbeating and insults and and spitting in his face, even though he's done nothing wrong. And so here is a righteous servant enduring punishment, enduring affliction on on behalf of others. And I think that's clearly fulfilled by Jesus in the New Testament. And so we see a responsive servant, an unresponsive family of Israelites, but a responsive servant, a willing, obedient servant in the Lord. And then we see the competent Lord. Again, just like in the first few verses, we see the Lord's strength and his power on display. So that theme comes up again in verses 7 through 9. Because the sovereign Lord helps me, I will not be disgraced. Therefore, have I set my face like flint, and I know I will not be put to shame. Now, think of that in direct relation to verse 6. Verse 6 says, my back is being beaten, my beard is being plucked out, I'm being spat upon. That seems like defeat and punishment and shame. But yet verse 7 says, the Lord has not abandoned me. Through all of this, the Lord is still with me and ultimately I will be vindicated. And we know that ultimately the Lord was vindicated, wasn't he? Those who mocked him, those who beat him, those who crucified him were found out to be the criminals and the liars and the betrayers. Jesus was seen to be the innocent one that he was. He was vindicated. He was raised from the dead. He ascended to the right hand of the throne of God. He, he was raised in victory and in vindication. And he says, because the Lord helps me, I will not be disgraced. Therefore, have I set my face like flint. That's a, it's a metaphor. It's a figure of speech uh, with the idea of a, a steadfast resoluteness. In fact, this, this, I, this imagery is found in the Gospel of Luke when it says that Jesus steadfastly set his face toward Jerusalem. So he's knowing what was ahead of him, knowing what awaited for him in Jerusalem, knowing that in the, in the near term, the short term, was shame and disgrace, but he set his face like flint toward Jerusalem, Resolutely to accomplish the will of God, knowing that ultimately in the end, he would not be disgraced. Knowing that ultimately in the end, he would not be put to shame and that he would be vindicated by his father in heaven. He who vindicates me is near the Lord, the sovereign Lord. He will ultimately vindicate me. Who then will bring charges against me? Let us face each other. Who is my accuser? Let him confront me. Paul uses these words in Romans chapter 8, talking about us as believers. Who is there to condemn us now? Who is the one who accuses us? And the implied answer is no one. That's the same implied answer here. No one can really bring an accusation against the Lord's servant because he's innocent. And us in Christ, in union with Christ... By grace through faith, Paul says in Romans 8 that the accuser, the devil, cannot bring an accusation against us either. We are justified, right? We're in Christ. And so Christ, the righteous one, no one could bring an accusation against him. Now us being in him, no one can bring an accusation against us. We stand forgiven, justified before God. It is the sovereign Lord who helps me, who will condemn me. They will all wear out like a garment. The moths will eat them up. And just an image of endurance versus that which passes away. So the Lord, the true Lord, the, the servant of God, the one who is righteous, though accused, will in the end be revealed to be the true one the righteous one he'll be vindicated and he will last forever while those who falsely accused him they will fade away into punishment and judgment and so the lord is is sustaining and upholding his servant and helping him to accomplish his ministry and in the end the sovereign lord will vindicate him then we see in the last couple of verses really in verses 10 and 11 there is a choice That's presented. There's a choice that's presented, an option. And it is an option of how will you respond to this servant of the Lord? How will you respond to his word? And so there's a contrast of responses. Verse 10 Who among you fears the Lord and obeys the word of his servant? Let the one who walks in the dark, who has no light, Trust in the name of the Lord and rely on their God. But now all you who light fires and provide yourselves with flaming torches, go. Walk in the light of your fires and of the torches that you have set ablaze. This is what you shall receive from my hand. You will lie down in torment. Now, when you look at the the contrast in verses 10 and 11, in a way, it's kind of odd because when you first read it, the imagery seems to be reversed of what we would normally expect about light and darkness. Because in the Bible, what you would normally expect about light and darkness is those who are in darkness go into judgment. Those who are in the light go into everlasting life. That's typically the imagery that we find in Scripture. Here, it's somewhat reversed. Because I think what is what is happening is those who are in darkness are those who recognize that they're in darkness. They recognize that they're blind. They recognize that they're without hope. And they recognize that their only source of help is in the Lord. And so the darkness there refers to, I think, their own condition their own spiritual condition in which they're in and their inability to guide themselves. And so where do they look? Those who fear the Lord, they look to him and they put their trust in him. But contrasted with that are those who seek to provide their own light. So those who light fires and provide yourselves with flaming torches, go walk in the light of your fires and of the torches that you have set ablaze. So the light there seems to be the light of human wisdom. Of what they have lit for themselves to guide their own path. And the problem with human wisdom is that in the end, it will ultimately lead you to destruction. And I think there's an irony here in verse 11, in that what they originally lit to be light and guidance in the end, is what brings them torment. So the fire that they intended to be for light and guidance, in the end, becomes the fire of torment. Becomes the fire of destruction. But the lesson in verses 10 or 11 is, where will you put your trust? And and will you listen to the servant of the Lord? If you see yourself as in darkness and blind and in need of help, then you can look to the source of help, which is in the Lord. But if you think that you can do this on your own and you think that you can light your own lamp of guidance, then you're ultimately going to end up away from the Lord in judgment and destruction. In a way, it kind of reminds me of when Jesus was talking to the Pharisees and he was talking to them about them thinking that they had light in them. And Jesus saying to the Pharisees, because you think that you have light in them, basically proves that you're still in darkness. So the Pharisees thought they were their own light. And they thought they had the light of God's word in them. But Jesus reveals to them that because they thought they were in the light, they were actually in the darkness. Whereas those who were in the darkness could then see the true light of Jesus Christ. And trust in him and be saved. And so I think the point that Isaiah is making here in the end is really deliverance, rescue from the Lord comes through his servant. Will you listen to the word of his servant? He is the one who will endure the pain and the beatings on the back and the pulling out of his beard and being spit upon. Will you go through him and listen to him? If so, you will find the light of life. But if you seek to find your own way and light your own path, then ultimately you'll be led astray into ultimate destruction. So I think there's a clear salvation gospel message here in that you, you can't, you can't pick yourself up by your own bootstraps, right? Uh, You can't earn your way to God. You can't earn your way to heaven. You can't find your own path to God. If you try to find your own path to God, you will ultimately fail and fail for all of eternity. There's only one way. And Jesus said, it's through him. I'm the way, the truth, and the life. And that seems to be foreshadowed here in this description of the servant in chapter 50, where you have to go through him, fear the Lord, and, and listen to the word of his servant. And so I, I, I hope, I pray that everyone in here has, has come to understand the true gospel, which is righteousness cannot be found in ourselves. Righteousness cannot be found in Jesus Christ through faith in him. But I think there's also lessons for, for us who are Christians, and that is just a reminder that we need to depend on the Lord every day. We need to listen to his word and continue to be open to his word every day. Uh, We need to remember that, that if even as believers that we're still tempted to look to our own wisdom and for guidance, but we need to go to God's word for guidance. We need to depend upon him. I hope this has been helpful and encouraging to you. And just thinking about this in the context of, the, the ancient Israelites who were in exile, this is, this is really a call to the remnant to believe. And the remnant that God will rescue and bring home, that, that God desires to bring home a righteous remnant. Not just a remnant, but a righteous one that trusts in the Lord and depends upon him.